0: The
1: country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail.
2: Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia. My name is Gemma Purdy. Last month, an artwork by Indonesian art collective, Taring Padi, made headlines in the world's media. Following the opening of the highly prestigious Documenta 15 art exhibition in Kassel, Germany, The large-scale poster was dramatically taken down from its prominent position in the city's main square amid accusations that it contained anti-Semitic images. How did such an image by these Indonesian artists come to be on such prominent display at this exhibition? Who are the festival's artistic directors and what was their part in the decision processes around this and other similarly controversial artworks in the exhibition this year? And what is the fallout from this controversy for the Indonesian artists themselves, but also the international art community at large? To answer these questions and more, I'm joined by Wulan Kantoro and Ali Kent. Hello, Ali and Wulan. Welcome back, Wulan, to Talking Indonesia and welcome, Ali. I think this is your first time. It is indeed. Oh, wonderful. Great to have you here. Before we get into the detail about the controversy involved in this particular art show, Ali, if you could give us a general description or idea of Documenta this exhibition, where it's held, and what makes it so unique and significant in the art world?
1: So Documenta is held in Kassel in Germany, It's only held every five years, so it's a big deal when it happens. It probably doesn't have the high international profile that the Venice Biennale does, but it's quite a different setup to the Venice Biennale as well. It was established by a painter and professor called Arnold Bode in 1955, and it was really focused on a kind of recovery for the German people from the after-effects of World War II, and in particular the kind of impact that the Nazi regime had had on art and particularly all of the modernist art and the art that was deemed as degenerate by the Nazis. So. That's a big part of the art history story behind it. And it was surprisingly popular. Documenta's website says that the first one had 130,000 visitors, that one in 1955. So after that, they decided to hold it every five years. And its setup is always a little bit different from the other major biennales and exhibitions that happen around the world. So it's international. It's always focused on what is cutting edge in contemporary art. And it's not representational in terms of countries. So there's no pavilions for different countries. There's no remit for them to have every country there or a particular group of countries. And each time it runs, they select a different curatorial or artistic director, usually an individual. But this year it was a collective of artistic directors.
2: Wow. Okay. So it's also got a really massive budget. Am I right in saying that? Like it's quite significantly funded?
1: Yes, so it's funded by the city of Kassel and the state that Kassel is in, in Germany. This is my understanding of it. It's a not-for-profit, but it's a charity organisation in its legal structure. So I'm not entirely across the entire funding structure, but it's a huge festival and it has a lot of investment in it from the German state.
2: Right, and it runs for several months and, it's, and so it's on right now until the end of September. Right. So it's a pretty amazing gig to be invited to exhibit your art at Castle.
1: It's huge. And to be the artistic director is, I guess, one of the top things that you could expect as a a career in contemporary art. That would be the peak.
2: So Wulan, we've already alluded to the fact that this year there was something different going on Mm. at Documenta and that quite amazingly really for the first time in its history they have chosen an art director, well not just a single individual but an art collective and indeed an Indonesian art collective, Ruang Rupa. Can you tell us about this art collective and how did they come to have this opportunity to curate such a large exhibition?
0: Thanks, Gemma. So, yes. So, Ruang Rupa, um, always spelled and written with a lowercase r. It's an artist initiative founded in Jakarta in 2000. So, initially, the collective founded by a group of students and young artists, predominantly their backgrounds coming from Jakarta Art Institute or IKJ. So it was really during that time when there's a lot of artist collective, artist initiative emerging in Indonesia. Uh, I remember this was um, sort of the early days of Reformasi and particularly a lot of artists at that time felt that they need the support and network of sort of, you know, their peers and like-minded people outside their school and academies. So which was really uh, significant for Ruang Rupa was that they really focused their activities, which means their programming and exhibitions and so on. They also curate exhibitions about art in the local urban context. That means that they're really focused on their activities in Jakarta. So over the decades, they evolve. So they also create other public-facing activities. Uh, so they're not just simply making art being exhibited for themselves, but as I said, they curate exhibitions, various kind of exhibitions for different kind of audience from incorporating high school students, broader community, and of course, the general art public. So they've become really quite a significant player, if you like, in Indonesia, particularly in the contemporary art scene, as well as in the urban landscape of Jakarta itself, because over those two decades, they've moved around places where they have, it's not Just them, it's the various collectives that are connected to their um, program. There's a studio, there's various studios, library, research lab, radio station, community school. Lots of things are happening in that space. How they get the opportunity to curate Documenta. So Documenta, every edition, um, as Elia mentioned, has different advisory board. And this advisory board always comprise of eminent experts in the field of contemporary art. And they then select artistic director for the next edition in Documenta. So Ruang Rupa over the decades have built this strong sort of global network as well. And then through this sort of network, then they were invited to submit a proposal. And th- th- this is a common process. Process as well for every documenter. they invited to submit their proposal and then got through several iterations of interviews it's like a job interview basically and therefore the Lumbung proposal got accepted for this Documenta 15.
2: So Ali what is Lumbung and so what is the curatorial approach that that Ruang Rupa have taken for Documenta 15? So
1: Lumbung kind of brings, I guess, what we might call a curatorial concept to the practices that Wulan outlined, that Wulan Rupa have been working with over the last nearly 20 years now. So Uh, Lumbung is a a communal rice barn in uh, many parts of Indonesia. So they've adopted this idea uh, of the Lumbung as a concept. Uh, Well, in fact, they say it's not a concept, it's a practice that Ruang Rupa has applied to their uh, curatorial strategy for Documenta. So basically, it's been structured in a very horizontal way. They've invited a lot of different collectives from around the world. So the collective that is Curating has invited a lot of other collectives to join and those collectives have also involved other collectives that are part of their networks in different parts of the world. So there's collectives from Australia, from Africa, from South America, from all sorts of places. And the way that that's been framed, particularly by the media in Germany and other places, is that these are collectives from the global south. So the Lumbung is a way to frame that idea of a collective practice, a horizontal practice. Ruangrupa refer to it as being a very transparent, inclusive, and... regenerative and sustainable practice. So a lot of the idea is around building networks and relationships that will carry on after
2: Documentus. So Wulan, Ellie's told us how it was very much an open collaborative process of reaching out to networks. One of the collaborators invited, I guess directly, Baruang Rupa, given that they're also Indonesian, was the art collective Taring Padi. Can you tell us about them and their creative process?
0: Yeah, Taring Padi is one of other collectives from Indonesia that's being invited by Ruang Rupa. The other one is Jatiwangi Art Factory and then there are others as well. So Taring Padi is really quite interesting because I think Taring Padi is also one of the early post-reformasi collective in Indonesia. If Ruang Rupa began in sort of 2000, Taring Padi started at the end of 98, so really fresh after the year in Indonesia. Again, it's started with a group of young students, this time from Jogja, from the Jogja Art Institute or EC. So it was really triggered by the movement or demolition of their old campus. And then they were very unhappy with that decision to move. And so some students starting to squat on the campus um, side. And eventually, those groups decided to then form a collective, uh, which is starting padi. So in the beginning, Taring Padi was really marrying or putting forward the idea of activism quite heavily in their ideological direction. But then eventually they also evolve. Similarly, like uh, Ruang Rupa, if I can compare that with other long lasting collective in Indonesia. So they become more open, more inclusive and not necessarily um, following the earlier direction, which is more hard uh, left wing practice. But having said that, they're also part of the long trajectory of artist collectives in Indonesia, even before the New Order, if you like, that really put forward the idea of putting art and activism together. But most importantly, it's about communicating art to the public, which was really distinct in their practice, in the sense that they then uh, put forward the name of the collective as opposed to individualism. So that's why in their work, you can't really pinpoint a particular name or a particular maker. They always put forward this as, you know, this work is made by Taring Party, not by an individual member. That also explains the medium that they use, posters, woodcuts, so anything that's easily redistributed and also very straightforward iconography so people can easily understand their message, which is really quite political and critical.
2: So over the years, I mean, we're talking more than 20 years, nearly 25 years, have the members of the collective changed? I mean, have they got new people and the older ones have moved out or how does it look generationally?
0: Oh, absolutely. I think we're on the third generation of Taringpadi Padi now. It's a mix. Right? The, the senior members, they call it senior members, they're still there, but more on sort of advisory level. A lot of the activities are now being run by the second and third generation. So it's very organic, very fluid membership. And I think they're even having difficulties keeping tracks who's in and who's out in the last two decades. Uh, b- because, you know, when they create, when they make their work, they're also very open for anyone to participate in their process. So anyone who would arrive in the studio, they will say, do you want to put your drawing in? Do you want to contribute? And if yes, fine, just come in. Just it's very relaxed like that.
2: Okay, well, that's really interesting insight to bring us to discussion of the actual piece that's the focus here, which is this very large piece titled The People's Justice. So, Ellie, do you want to describe it, Boris? Yes,
1: so it's enormous. Hopefully listeners will be able to see a picture of the size of it. It's an enormous banner. It would be maybe a couple of storeys high, and it's in several parts. It's several different spandux banners stitched together or hung together at least on a frame. A really large frame. It's teeming with figures. When was it created? It was made in 2002 and it was actually made specifically for the Adelaide Arts Festival. Party were invited at that time in the early 2000s. They were actually invited to quite a lot of international and especially Australian arts events. So they exhibited all sorts of places in Australia and also in Japan and other places around the world. But this work was made specifically for the Adelaide Arts Festival and it specifically addresses the legacy of the New Order. So it's really tied to their origin story as part of the protest movement against the New Order and the um, student movement against Suharto. It features large and small figures of a really wide variety of kind of caricatured figures. It's hard to describe how many different and disparate kinds of representations there are in it. You know, there are angels, there are a lot of animalistic references or um, some people would call zoomorphism. So it's uh, pictures of people but their facial features are those of animals and particularly pigs, which is very common in Tarangpadi's work at the time and actually in quite a few Indonesian artists' work at that time. And since pigs are a very common way to represent, as we know, um, authority figures, it's the police, it's politics it's banks and um, you know world bank security agencies spy agencies all of these kinds of elements of what we would think of as a I guess a dichotomy between colonial and colonized societies and if we wanted a shorthand we'd go with global north versus global south or probably more pertinent for that time western societies and their impositions or western imperialism over colonized societies
2: learn the figures that Ali's describing there would be recognisable to Indonesians perhaps from the New Order military regime and then also, as Ali was saying, these kind of international figures.
0: Yeah, well, in this particular work, there's no recognizable figures as such, as in, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, they also produce other works that uh, we can clearly say that, look, this is the figure of the politician, so-and-so, this is a figure of Suharto, you can clearly see that in the face, but not with this particular works, as Ellie said, it's the sheer dimension of the work itself that makes it really difficult. There's a lot of things happening on this work, and so... I remember there's also multiple people uh, working on this piece over a period of time and the same person may not come back again to do the work to finish the, their work so that's just how the collective operates but there are certain figures and and symbols that sort of are coming out from the, the universal understanding you know so figures wearing military uniform carrying weapons they are marching over a field of skull and bones so that's very much um, how we would understand and the military oppression create victims and so on. So yeah, there's a lot of things happening in this uh, particular work.
2: I mean it's massive so it would be almost you know an overwhelming kind of visual experience just to look up at this huge double story yeah. banner and gaze across all those different images but there are a couple of images that once the Germans got a close look at this banner which you know from what I read it wasn't put up till basically the eve of the exhibition opening right that's part of part of the story here but before we talk about that tell us what are the images that are the issue here
0: yeah, I think before I continue as so well, I just want to remind everyone again about the figure should be read in connection with other figures in the work as well. I think this is one of the big issue that came out from this controversy that the focus on one figure really sort of bring down the. Bigger context of the work. But having said that, that figure is clearly, clearly problematic. So, this was a figure that stood, it's fairly small, right, Ellie? It's really quite difficult to see with this um, mixture of others, sort of wearing typical attributes of Orthodox Jew with the side locks and then with the hat as well that identified as an Orthodox Jew. But at the same time, it's also a cartoon. Actually, um, it is a cartoon of an Orthodox Jew with attributes of that. So this figure with the side lock portrayed with a big pointy teeth. So for those audience members that's been educated to identify anti-Semitic figures, you know, whether through media or through other forms, this figure stood out in that depiction. However, this is our question, right? How did this image emerge in the first place in this collective that are very inclusive in their identity? ideology, if you like.
1: Yeah, so Taring Patti is well known for their stand against racism and discrimination. And there are even particular works that precede this that include various religious symbols in one poster work that calls for peace among brethren and peace among the faithful. So it's one of the confusing things for anyone who's familiar with Taring Patti's work is how anti-Semitic imagery could appear in their work and also there's something quite confusing about the way that this figure is constructed as well as being clearly a kind of anti-Semitic caricature it also has an an SS runes on the hat the character's wearing so there's uh, even within itself if we were to look at it as a standalone image it's quite confusing in what it seems to be trying to say.
2: Yeah I mean so as Wulan has said those who are educated in the history of these kinds of imagery was immediately attuned to it. But how have Taring Party responded since this was pointed out to them, I guess, is is the question. Or had it previously been pointed out to them that these images were indeed anti Semitic or this particular one? It
1: would appear that no one has ever noticed this image in this work before, as far as we've been able to find in our discussions with Taringpadi and looking back on various texts, looking at the work. It's been displayed in Australia, in East Timor, in uh, Japan, in Georgia, and so far this is the first time anyone's picked up this particular figure as an anti-Semitic figure, and Taring Party were, uh, from what we can gather, shocked to have it pointed out to them, to r- realise what it is and what it means. And this is in spite of the fact of, uh, you know, Taring Party are, are now, uh, quite the senior members in particular, are quite cosmopolitan. Some of them live in Germany. Some of them, they all have quite extensive international experience. But you know, also even in the Australian context um, and in the Japanese context, and 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 various other places where it's been shown, it hasn't drawn any attention. There are quite a lot of potentially offensive uh, images in the work. If you look closely at every little figure, uh, you can probably think of someone who might be a- offended. But this is, work is, is this a
0: family friendly? Is this, this a family, family friendly?
1: friendly one. <laughs> I would say, I won't go into great details, but there are other figures that are. Uh, open to interpretation, but I think the history of this particular um, kind of image, it was described by the Israeli embassy as uh, Goebbels-like propaganda. And when you look at Goebbels' propaganda, you can see where that interpretation would come from. But the real question is then how do a bunch of 20-something-year-old artists in Jogjakarta in 2002 end up with an image like this. When we first heard about this, Wollan and I were really, in many ways, we weren't very surprised. Actually, we could think of lots of ways that an image like this would be circulating in that context. You know, this is immediately after 9-11, in 2001. I was actually in Yogyakarta when 9-11 happened and there was a lot of angst about the uh, vilification of Islam as the responsible party and all Muslims as responsible parties. So the situation was very tense in terms of that kind of east-west dichotomy and particularly around the responses from the US and what followed on from 9-11. So you know, anti-Semitic imagery was circulating. But how much anyone understood of what it meant as separate from anti-imperialist, I'm going to use the word propaganda, but hopefully as your listeners are uh, familiar with Indonesia, the word propaganda doesn't always have the same negative overtones as it does in Australia. So propaganda, uh, disinformation, all sorts of materials floating around uh, that are anti-imperialist, anti almost anything that comes along with America, Europe, colonialism, imperialism, and within that, yeah, strains of anti-Semitism as well, particularly Mm. in the Muslim context.
2: Because the other image, there's another one, right, that has been of um, concern, which is Mm. the image of the Mossad agent. Yeah. Um, Mm. But as you pointed out, Ali, it's alongside... CIA agents or um, any other international spy agency from the West or whatever. So it's yeah. in that way. But in the German context, it's seen as anti-Israelian, ergo anti-Semitic.
1: Yes, there's certainly, there's there's a particular contemporary context, I think, that can go some way to explaining why this particular image is now, yeah, so problematic. I mean, I think it's it's always problematic. It's a problematic image for sure, but why... People were looking for it, and actually, there's a whole lot of context in the inside Documenta and what's happened over the last the six months in the lead up to Documenta in Germany, and related to, to Documenta itself. Um, Yeah,
2: the heat was on Ruang Rupa for months and months, wasn't it? It, mm -hmm. About a particular group that was involved in the exhibition and inferences about Ruang Rupa being pro-Palestinian. Yeah, and in fact, actual
1: attacks on artists' work, um, vandalization of work by Palestinian artists and Mm -hmm. really quite spurious accusations. I mean, in in this case, obviously, it's a a a fair accusation of anti-Semitism in this work but that but other accusations were unfounded and that resulted in what is what many of the artists involved in Documenta particularly given there are many people of colour many Muslims many women many people who are outside of the kind of Mm -hmm. uh, mainstream of German society have felt very very unsafe well before this controversy has come to light and unsafe and, and there's very strong accusations of um, racism.
0: They also include a lot of, um, a number of artists with um, Jewish background in mm, Documenta. Yeah. And they also invite a collective uh, based in Brazil with a Jewish focus, but the collective didn't participate in the final selection. But also artists that are part of the Documenta, uh, they don't necessarily want to be identified either by nation or the religious affiliation and and so on. And it's really then, as as Ellie said, it's really connected to this bigger atmosphere that's already building in Germany. And then Documenta became a sort of yeah, flashpoint for this, yeah.
2: So so tell us, so it, it came to a head with these images being identified and the media kind of going crazy. What were the responses of Taring Party to begin with? And well, Ruang Rupa, as you say, Taring Party was shocked, but what did they do?
0: Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of introspection happening within the collective themselves. And then eventually they release a statement. And, um, well, we, we believe that the statement, what apology, was sincere. And when we spoke to them, they're really looking forward to to move forward and to learn about the impact of their images, right? It's, you know, sort of reconsidering their um, artistic strategy, if you like. And then Ruang Rupa continuously also make amends from releasing public apology. And then I think Ade Darmawan recently gave a statement in the parliament, the German parliament, again reiterating the reputation of being anti-Semitic and so on. But it seems that it's just, um, at this stage, it's just grown bigger and bigger. I mean, this statement was already released by Ruang Rupa quite early on when there's the incidence of artists' studios being vandalised and, and also the earlier selection of the pro, a pro-Palestinian group and so on. But it feels that it's not enough. There's just there's, there's, there's more and more things building up mm. now. So um, removing
2: the artwork has not diffused this at all?
0: No.
1: I would say it it has had some, uh, well, perhaps not uh, the intended effect, but one of the things that Tarangpati said when we spoke to them was that they had had a lot of support actually from other residents in Castle who had come round to talk to them about the work, to talk to them about all of their works because this is not the only work that they had. There's a whole uh, another building that's full of essentially a Tarangpati retrospective. So it's quite possible to get a much better sense of Taringpati's whole era, uh looking at the other works that are on display. And so they have said that they felt a real level of support from individuals and other collectives and, and members of the, the German public. Mm. But from a, a kind of institutional and political level, that support has been well, if it's there it's it's sporadic and difficult to identify and even from the beginning um ruang Rupa had planned a series of seminars or a seminar called uh, we need to talk which uh was about uh, intended to kind of address this idea of anti-Semitism mm. in art and discuss it in a in a uh, a forum where, with representation from as you know uh, for want of a better word stakeholders in the debate um around what is anti-Semitism, what is uh, anti-Zionism, uh, how does this play out in art, what is the role of institutions, etc.? cetera. Um, but that was cancelled. Why? Yeah. W- Wulan, did you want to respond to that? Why?
0: Well, I think the why was simply because they felt that There was no uh, safeguarding measures for those discussions. So in other words, it will not bring a positive discussion, if you like. It's just certainly what it was planned before the um, controversy. But then because of that, yeah, basically it will not come as a positive, open discussion. And there were no guarantee of the safety of those speakers and participants. The
1: other thing that was um, cancelled but actually happened to some extent anyway, was that uh, Party planned a ruwatan, a cleansing ceremony, a purification ceremony, which was cancelled officially but they did end up having it and you can see footage of it on Instagram on their accounts. This included reading out their statement, public sort of a singing and dancing performance.
2: Was this attended by other members of the organisation or...? It was attended by other members of the public and uh, uh, other I mean,
1: artists in yeah, Documenta, yeah. They're yeah. calling themselves, the, I think, the Lumbung Artist Community now. Yeah, there was an audience, but it was not an official part of the programming.
2: Yeah. Um, Do you yeah. get the sense that this issue... You know, it's kind of been overtaken by a lot of other stuff that perhaps is going on. I mean, the fact that the director of Documenta has resigned, that the minister is involved—it feels way bigger than one piece of art.
1: Yeah, I think so. And Wulan and I attended a, a discussion that t- took place on on Zoom, but from Indonesia recently, with some really excellent speakers discussing the issue and, and some of them Indonesians living in Germany. And one of the takeaways that I thought was really interesting was one of, one of those speakers said it's actually not about Indonesia. So Indonesians are very worried about this stain or this accusation that Indonesians are anti-Semitic or that artists are anti-Semitic or that Taringpati in particular, who are really quite beloved in the Indonesian art scene, could be seen in this way. But uh, as this speaker said, it's actually it's a manifestation of stuff that's happening in Germany that's not about Indonesia at all.
2: Okay, so what is it within Ruang Rupa's power to control at this point? Or is that kind of been taken out of their hands a little bit, the artistic direction of
0: yeah. the exhibition? Yeah, well, that's that's a good question. And that, that is also one of our questions, right? Because in Ellie and myself in our article, we sort of asked that question. Well, first the question is how then the curatorial concept, such as Lumbung, when it's being transferred, if you like, to an institutional setup like a documenta, can the existing system in that institution adopt and accept Lumbung as a framework? And then looking at this whole controversy, it doesn't seem that they really quite know how to deal with the curatorial framework in the first place. Because we've seen statements um, from various artists saying that, you know, despite the acceptance of the framework, the systems in place, On practice that they still rely on the same bureaucracy and institutional system in the normal type of curation. So within the documenta itself, they're sort of struggling to adopt the lumbung. But secondly, from inside the artistic directorial team, the other question that we ask is whether or not they also have a system in place in sort of a safeguarding measures for, for artists and for audience, sort of creating that safe space for everyone.
1: So the way that Lumbung was set up, each of the collectives or individuals that were involved were put into smaller units and they were given the responsibility of distributing a certain amount of funds, had to negotiate amongst themselves about how that money would be spent. And at some point in that process, artworks would have been decided. And, and what isn't very clear in spite of the Uh, aspirations for transparency is what is the selection process for which artworks will be displayed and where they'll be displayed and who's responsible for making those decisions and then who takes responsibility for Mm. whatever happens in those decisions so as you said Gemma the work wasn't seen by anyone prior to because of apparently conservation issues the work's Mm. quite old was probably was never made with the intention of being displayed 20 years later Um, so it needed some conservation work before it could be displayed but you know it's not a work that isn't documented elsewhere it's it's in their book there are pictures of it around so at what point was the decision made that this work would be displayed in castle's main square and which is a particularly risky place to display it because you can't contextualize works that are in really large open public spaces in the same way that you can in a building.
2: Right, and it wasn't in the same space as the rest of the Party work that you've described as being extensive.
0: No, yeah. There's another venue where Taring Padi displayed a larger body of work, the Hallenbad, um, which is a former swimming pool. That was the site where Taring Party members, um, Fitri, told us how they received such strong support from the castle community. This is not just within the artistic community, but also from community. And she said that one visitor, um, actually took it on herself to offer to Fitri, let me just walk around the exhibition space to see if there are any other potentially offensive image. And so she did. And then, you know, and then they had a conversation. So that was the kind of contextualization that's being done on the spot by the member of that time. Yeah. So the placement in the public square, which is really that's the main square outside the main venue of Documenta. Yeah. That was one of the questions, isn't it? That curatorial decision, and the responsibility i suppose
2: you mentioned mm-hmm. the the forum that you attended with the indonesian responses but more generally the media in indonesia being interested in this and has there been an interest and in what kind of response has there, there been in, in indonesia
0: mm. it's generally well initially when when Documenta opened it was super positive um there's you know, it's so um, proud, I imagine. Like, it, uh, it's oh, a, yeah. It's a oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. But then, when the controversy erupts, uh, there's a couple of news, but this was mainly BBC news, uh, BBC Indonesia, so not the mainstream or the national um, news, um, as far as I know. Jakarta Post, for example, has um, covered this, um, and this is also a short piece, um, several short pieces, I think, trying to explain the context of the controversy but not necessarily from the art perspective but more sort of the social and historical background it's our social big. media response is quite big that's so that's where mm-hmm. it's quite big but again that takes a discussion into a different direction
2: has that response on social media been, you know that uh, we've been misunderstood unfairly treated etc yeah i think
1: largely that and not just in indonesia there's quite a, a large amount of pushback against documenter um Saying that Germany, as a society, is not ready to really address its colonial histories, and that documentary, well, this particular iteration of documentary is essentially a victim of, of a lack of readiness to really um, look honestly on these situations.
2: yeah, I mean, I, I have read a lot of commentary that is, this is a great moment because we can use this now as a launching pad for the discussions that you've talked about, Ali. And I guess from what you said, Wulan, when you described the the community member coming to the exhibition with Taringpadi and saying, let me walk around with you and uh, locate any offensive imagery and there's that exchange going on, which is really interesting. And so I guess just as a final kind of reflection Within the Indonesian art community, I mean, I guess this is a little bit of a shockwave, but what do you think it might mean for the Indonesian who is an international artist and how they might represent their work in the future or think about entering into these kinds of international exhibitions? Do you have any reflections on that yet?
1: I do think it's a great opportunity, uh, not just for Germany, but for for all of us who come from, you know, colonial or colonised and even currently colonised societies like we do here in Australia. There are a lot of things to discuss from all the different angles. I think it's an opportunity for Indonesian artists as well to become more engaged with global histories and um, like understandings of geopolitical movements that are more nuanced and that are more informed. I would hope that that would be one of the outcomes. Um, I think it's really a, a time, as as we can see around us, for us to go one way or another as a kind of global community in how we understand each other, how we understand each other's histories and engage with each other and think about new ways of um, living together in the future as we go forward. So, you know, that's probably a bit pat as a response, but but it is a great opportunity, I think, in that way for, for Indonesia, for anyone who's interested in being a good global citizen. Willan, final comments?
0: Yeah clearly a, le- a steep learning curve. And it's a it's an important learning curve, as Ellie has outlined. But I would also think that it should encourage everyone, Indonesians, and also those sort of being put in a box, if you like, as representing the global south to gain that confidence of putting forward a, a radical proposition, if you like, through this Lumbung as practice, not just a theoretical framework of, you know, this is the way we make art, but it's precisely the way we make art here in the Global South. So that sort of level of confidence, I think, should be put forward. And I guess these are the moment in time when this is big opportunities to create critical discussion about the, the contributions um, and the future of art making and it its connection to society beyond just looking at and, and consuming objects.
2: That's a pretty perfect final comment. Thank you so much for this really engrossing discussion that I'm sure we could continue for another couple of hours, (laughs) but we'll do that offline another time. So thank you both so much, Ali and Wulan, for joining us.
0: Terima kasih. Terima kasih juga. That was Wulan Durgantoro, a
2: lecturer in art history and curatorship in the School of Culture and Communication at the University of Melbourne. And Ali Kent, editor of New Mandela, and the Deputy Director of the ANU Indonesia Institute. You can find a link to their article on Documenta 15 on the Talking Indonesia blog. Talking Indonesia will return on the 18th of August, hosted by Dave McRae. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.